Welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in Session 1 of our Answers in Genesis conference, Dr. Mitchell will bring a message entitled, Are You Intimidated? Alrighty. Welcome you back to your seats. Time to get started here. We're glad to have you all assembled for Answers in Genesis. Uh, I love that. Are you intimidated? I don't know that I am, but um, I've certainly been in moments uh, where uh, I would like to have some ample resources at hand. Amen? Amen. So here we have a great speaker uh, to introduce to you, Dr. Tommy Mitchell, and you'll know as soon as he says the first word what part of the country he is from. And... uh, Yes, our speaker, Dr. Tommy, has been a physician oh, over 20 years or so, but he left a thriving, um, um, what do you call it? Practice. All I could think of was ministry, ministry, ministry. He left a, a, a thriving practice to join Ken Ham and his ministry, uh, Answers in Genesis. And so really he just helps Christians to defend and share the faith, uh, especially from the perspective of creationism, uh, from that opening sentence, that first sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and uh, that's our foundation, amen? So with, without any further ado, Dr. Tommy, come and minister to us. Thank you. Yeah, I'm definitely not from around here. And, uh, and it has been pointed out to me a number of, I've only been here like an hour and a half, and about 15 people have said, you're not from around here, are you? There's some really sharp people here, by the way. <laughs> Uh, so I do apologize for my accent. Uh, see, the thing you don't understand, it's not easy being me. <laughs> because, see, I travel all over the world sounding like this. Answers in Genesis sent me to Rochester, New York three years ago. Those Yankees thought Gomer Pyle had come to town. <laughs> I could have told them evolution was good. They didn't care. They just wanted to hear me talk. <laughs> did you just say ain't? I reckon I did, Yeah. yeah. Are you intimidated? If you say you're not, you're lying. Because everybody is at some point. I mean, I have been in the past. I'm not now. But the thing is, people get intimidated because they think if they take a stand on this word, they're not going to have answers. Well, Tommy, I'm not a geneticist. Tommy, I'm not a physicist. Tommy, I'm not an astronomer. I'm not either. I'm a medical doctor. I've studied you. I'm a life sciences guy, but I talk about rocks actually way too much not many things duller than rocks i've talked about rocks a lot but i'm not a geologist but i'm well read on those things you know why because god's called me to be you know something god's called you to be too a chinese paleontologist lectures around the world saying that recent fossil finds in his country are inconsistent with the darwinian theory of evolution his reason 
The major animal groups appear abruptly in the rocks over a relatively short time, rather than evolving gradually from a common ancestor, as the theory predicts. In other words, this paleontologist is looking at these rocks, and he says, well, I see this creature, and this creature, and this creature. That's pretty interesting. I see this, and this, and this. But if this is supposed to evolve into that, and that's supposed to evolve into that, how come I only see this, this, and this? I don't see the intermediate forms. When this conclusion upsets American scientists, he comments, in China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. (laughs) In America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. (laughs) And if you don't think that's true, go to any college campus and tell them you don't accept Darwin. Have your bags packed. We've got testimony after testimony after testimony and report and and records, case after case after case, where professors and teachers were, shall we say, marginalized, sanctioned, let go for basically expressing their disagreement with Darwinian thought, not from any religious standpoint. Most of these people are not Christians. They just criticize Darwin. That is not allowed. You ever ask the question, what if they're right? When I was in practice, my nurse used to collect these magazines because, you know, the mail would come in. They put it on my desk. She would try to get to the mail every day before me because she knew if I saw something like this, I was going to be mad for three days. I mean, if it, you know, National Geographic. I mean, sometimes the National Geographic would be gone, but the, she'd leave the maps there. It would be a map of Ecuador. I'd go, that's a really nice map. The rest of the magazine was gone. Because this, you know, the day the universe lit up, scientists uncover the second creation 100 million years after the Big Bang. They can't even prove the first Big Bang. Now they've proved the second one. But, but, but it's so professionally written and so professionally laid out, and it's all these really, you know, nice color magazine, the layout and the design. You go, what if they're right? I'll tell you what I found out. November 1st, 2006. I found out that day I was an idiot. Which I'd already been introduced to the concept because I do have a mother-in-law. But nonetheless, (laughs) on that day, I became in the eyes of the world an idiot. Now, for the 25 years before that, I was honorable physician. I've got six letters after my name. I have an earned doctorate in medicine. For all those years, hopefully, I, you know, brought to to, to my patients. I was a good doctor for me, did all the right things and made all the right decisions, those kind of things. But then on November 1st, 2006, I became an idiot because that was the day I joined Answers in Genesis full-time. I was told by many of my colleagues, people I'd worked closely with for 20 years, you're just an idiot. You're going to go out and use that medical degree and teach this? This is, this is a myth. This is a fable. This is nonsense. You're not going to be considered scientific anymore. And they're right. I'm no longer considered scientific. Bill Nye has said many times that the answers in Genesis staff are not real scientists, which is curious because Bill Nye has a bachelor's degree in engineering. I have a doctorate in medicine. Uh, but none, none, nonetheless, I'm not scientific. And, you know, Dr. Georgia Purdom has a Ph.D. in molecular genetics, and he has a uh, bachelor's degree in uh, engineering, so obviously we're not scientific. And see, that's the thing. If you take a stand on the Word of God, you're not scientific. Well, I, I, that sort of made me kind of concerned. I thought, wow, the only thing I've ever been good at is science. I mean, when I was in school, I was the science whiz kid. I remember when I was a senior in high school, my English teacher asked me to analyze a poem. He did that one time. I think he's still in therapy. I remember something about it. It's supposed to rhyme at certain places. And I remember something about iambic pentameter. The rest of that stuff I had no clue about. But you asked me about how DNA works or starling curves for cardiac pressures and stuff. We'll talk about that all day long because that's interesting stuff. I love science. But I got to thinking, what is science? So I looked it up. 
This is the scientific method. Principles and procedures for the systematic pursuit of knowledge involving the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data through observation and experiment, and the formulation and testing of hypotheses. Does that definition help you at all? <laughs> I was more confu- confused after I read the definition and before I started, oh, maybe I'm not scientific. I don't even know what they're talking about. Basically, what science is, is this. It's collecting and accumulating data about our world using our five senses. But you know when science is done? It's done now. It's observable. It's testable. It's repeatable. I'm talking about real science. I love real science. But you know what so-called real science says? We're the product of chemical reactions over millions of years. First, there was an explosion. Then everything sort of coalesced. And then the earth was a hot molten blob. And it got covered by water. And now we're here we are. And that's called science. Can you observe or test any of that? No, that's called science. Folks, what I'm going to tell you is this. This is the foundation of my thinking in every area. About theology, sure. About morality, sure. About relationships, absolutely. About science, you bet. This is not a science textbook. It is not intended to be. But when the Bible speaks of issues of science or history, it can be relied on absolutely. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. You know where my science starts? Right here. This is not hard. God created everything in six days, six ordinary 24-hour days. How many people saw the Bill Nye Kenham debate? Anybody see that? That was like three of the longest hours of my life. And we have been roundly criticized since the debate was over by Christians because you failed, you lost. Ken didn't do a good job in the debate. You didn't use my favorite evidence. You should have said this. You should have, if you'd have given this evidence, you'd have won the debate. If you'd have used this evidence, you'd have won the debate. This is my favorite evidence. It always stumps my friends. If Ken Hammond used this evidence, he'd have won the debate. See, people think this is a battle of evidence. Folks, let me tell you, this is not about evidence. I have the same evidence as an evolutionist. So I look at the world and go, this is great evidence for creation. Richard Dawkins looks at the world and says, this is great evidence for evolution. We're looking at the same world. We have the same animal. Folks, we have the same facts. The thing that most people don't understand is we have the same science. And folks, when I say science, I mean what we call observational science. I love science. It's the only thing I've ever been good at. I mean, when I say science, I mean, that's the, you know, the, 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 the things that give us our modern technology and put men on the moon and help us build better bridges and airplanes and better computers and, and things that give us our wonderful medical advances and help keep people alive and new antibiotics. I, I love science, but science is done in the present. There's an aspect of science where they, these are, you know, we have a problem, we see it, we accumulate data, we try to fix it, we try to collect data, and, and, and we, we come to our conclusions. That's what observational science is. But there's another aspect of so-called science. It's called historical science. You know what historical science is? It's basically storytelling about the past. Like if you have a fossil and you're looking at it, can you directly test how that creature acted when it was alive? No. You know you have this fossil. For example, uh, we're going to say you have this fish fossil. What do you know about that? It's dead. (laughs) Or very, very still. I'll accept that answer too. Because I've not watched them for prolonged periods of time, but it's dead. What else do you know? It's fish. It's a dead fish. That's all you know. But guess what? When you read these paleontology journals, they're going to tell you about the ecosystem and what it ate and what it thought and, and what it's, the test on its third grade geography test was. And, and it's going to tell you. 
You know what that's called? That's supposition. That's guesswork about the past. None of that can be directly tested. But see, the world says we know how things came to be. For example, what is this? Okay, some of you can read. Others are having a problem here. Okay, this is the way the conference is going to work. I'm going to ask a question you're going to answer. Now, 95% of the time, if you just say yes or Genesis, you're good, okay? The trick questions are answered on the slide, okay? I'll do the carbon-14 stuff. You can do the easy ones. Let's try this again. What is this? The Grand Canyon. What is the Grand Canyon? It's the deepest hole in the ground in the world, right? We don't have holes like this in Tennessee. That's the deepest hole I've ever thought about being in. That thing's almost a mile deep. You look at that, that, that's incredible. That's the deepest hole in the ground I ever thought about. You see those rock layers? Those rock layers are obviously millions of years old. You got one or two choices. Either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water cause those rock layers, or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time cause those rock layers. Now, both of those conclusions, we're talking about the same rock layers. And in many of those rock layers, you'll find fossils. Now, how does something become a fossil? Really simple. It gets buried very rapidly, right? Say, um, can you think of an event in history that would have resulted in billions of creatures being buried rapidly in unimaginable amounts of sediment? Does, 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 does something come to mind? How about the flood of Noah's day, the great fountains of the deep breaking open, the worst cataclysm the world's ever seen, sedimentation on a global cataclysmic catastrophic scale, bearing billions of creatures suddenly in unimaginable amounts of sediment. Say, at the time of the flood, lots of things got buried rapidly. <laughs> See, I look, at the, I look at the Grand Canyon and I go, wow, that's great. I mean, the, the flood caused this. The world says, no, it took millions of years. You know what I say? I say it took a few weeks. But with real observational science, you know what you can tell? There are rock layers there. They don't scream out, hey, it took billions of years. They're there. But guess what? I've got a history book that gives me of an account of an event that would result in those rock layers. I mean, DNA, for example. DNA is the molecule of heredity. DNA is one of the most amazing things in our world. And see, I'm particularly fond of DNA because it's a life sciences thing, and it gets me away from having to talk about rocks for a while because rocks are just, like, dull. Uh, but anyway, DNA is the molecule of heredity. DNA is the most amazing information system ever. I mean, it is unbelievably complex. But what the world says is this molecule assembled itself. Three billion years ago, the earth was covered, you know, just by vast oceans, just, you know, like a big pot of chicken soup. And the nucleotides, you know, the molecules that make up DNA, they assemble themselves. Now, they won't use amazing or magic or whatever, but that's pretty much what you have to do if you're an evolutionist. But nonetheless, somehow these molecules assemble themselves. Then these molecules started bumping together. And when they bumped together, they started attaching, sort of like they think it's like Velcro. But it doesn't work that way because it takes energy. But nonetheless, I'm trying to be as kind as I can. Anyway, these things start bumping together, bumping together. And these long strands, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of nucleotides are all strung together in exactly the right order. I, I, I'm welcome to my world. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of amazed myself. But the thing is, Dr. Georgia Purdom, who's one of my best buddies at the ministry. She, she has a PhD in molecular genetics, and she and I have this joke about DNA. You know, the more we study, the less we know about it, because the thing is, it is unimaginably complex, and this unimaginably complex information system assembled itself spontaneously, 
And the thing is, even if you were to astound the odds and you had all the nucleotides in this big vat of chicken soup and it all assembled itself and you had, you know, the DNA, everything was in the appropriate order, have you accomplished anything? No, because you've got one problem. How are you going to decode it? You have to have a language system to make it make sense. For example, if I pass a, a hat full of letters around this room and people start drawing out the letters and three people in a row pulled out these letters, B-A-T, what does that mean? I know what it says. What does it mean? But you, but you got the right, your heart's in the right place. At least you answered the question, sort of. What does it mean? It means what? I mean... Okay, do we have a sergeant at arms here? We're going to you know, this crowd. I've been doing this 10 minutes and you're already getting out of hand. But anyway, what, I mean, does that mean like a baseball bat? Does it mean a flying bat? Does it mean your mother-in-law? I mean, what does it mean? <laughs> See, the thing is you have to have a way to read it, right? DNA is the same way. DNA is a language. If you found an ancient clay tablet with strange characters washed up on the shore, you couldn't read it, unless someone had cracked the code. But you'd still know the letters represented a language, even if you didn't know anything else about the author or his civilization. Language is recognizable, even if you can't read it. Take Morse code. It has three basic parts, dots, dashes, and spaces. These three simple parts are combined to represent letters. There are 26 letters in the English language, which are combined to form over 400,000 words. Those words can, of course, be combined into an infinite number of sequences or sentences. There is evidence that DNA represents a language. Four basic units, called nucleotides, combine into a code for 20 amino acids. From those few amino acids, the body forms more than 100,000 proteins. Even if you can't read DNA, it still has all the hallmarks of language, a language that biologists are just now beginning to crack. Every tiny cell in our body is packed with three feet of DNA, three billion nucleotides. The similarity between DNA and human language is uncanny. In addition to codes, both use similar techniques to pack, access, rearrange, copy, and translate information. DNA seems to represent a language, the language of life. An unseen author, the creator of heaven and earth, has left a testimony of his existence in the DNA of every living thing. See, therein lies the problem. You know what the world says? Matter is all that matters. Everything's just the result of chemicals bumping together. You know what language is? Language is immaterial. You know what uh, information is? It's non-material. See, that's the problem. You have things that are non-material tried to be explained by, you know, material processes. When you look at DNA, the only possible conclusion you can reach is that God's word's true. What's this? It's a wolf. Now, to go from the simple one-cell life form to man, because what the world says is billions of years ago in the earth's primordial seas, this is big vat of chicken soup, all the right chemicals and things came together, and the first simple life form assembled itself. 
Now, folks, I don't know where people came up with this idea of the, you know, this first simple life form. I've studied the cell at a postdoctoral level. It ain't simple. There's nothing simple about it. But you go from a one-cell creature to man. Do you have to add information or lose information? Have to add, there are over 200 different cell types in the human body. You go from one cell creature to man, you have to add information. So what the world says is to go, you know, th- things over time get more complex. And the thing is, you know, you've got this, say, wolf. And I mean, how many different varieties of dogs are there? I mean, every time I Google it, I get a different answer, but just there's a bunch. So how do you start off with two dogs and you got all these different varieties of dogs? It's real simple. It's called natural selection. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this at one of the later sessions. We talk about the ark and the flood. But the thing is, you start off with two creatures. How do you get all these different varieties of creatures? Well, it's simply this. Natural selection is a concept that helps us understand how creatures adapt to environments because there are certain physical characteristics that cause certain creatures to have a survival benefit in certain environments. For example, do uh, polar bears do better in the Arctic or in the Smokies? Arctic. Why? I mean, a polar bear in the, in the Smokies, what's going to happen to it? It's going to get eaten because p- things are going to be able to see it or it can't sneak up on food. It's going to have a tough time. But in the Arctic, it does very nicely. So the light-colored fur does better there. Do dogs who live in um, warm climates do better if they have long fur or short fur? What happens if they have long fur? <laughs> they get too hot. They don't reproduce as well. What happens if dogs live in cold environments? Do better if they have long fur or short fur? What happens if they have short fur? They don't reproduce as well. Dogs that live in heavily forested areas do better if they have light-colored fur or dark-colored fur. This is not hard. See, this is, certain physical characteristics give creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. And over multiple generations, those offspring that have those favorable characteristics tend to propagate those characteristics to further generations. I mean, that's not hard. So you get sorting the genetic material. But see, what the world says... As you start off with a simple life form, and over time, things get more complex and more complex. So you start with relatively simple creatures, then you get more complex creatures, and you end up with, you know, the primates, and you end up with man. So that's a simple, it's, it's sort of easy to understand that over time, the evolutionists want you to believe that things are getting more complex. But you know, in the real world, you know what real genetics shows you? Things are running down. Things are going the opposite direction. You're having sorting because of different environments. So you start off with, say, we'll use the dogs as an example. You start off with a real husky dog, like a coyote or a wolf or something. Over multiple generations, you have sorting the genetic material, and you get all these different varieties of dogs. Now, all these dogs are still what? Dogs. They're all staying dogs. You just get different varieties. It's called variation within the kind. And the thing is, this is a good thing. Because God put the maximum amount of genetic information in the original created kinds, knowing they were going to have to adapt to different environments, different circumstances in a fallen, cursed world. The problem for the evolutionists is when you look at, at uh, and I'm, I'm very careful about using the word species and speciation because different uh, biologists and different zoologists and at different universities, they, they, they define the term differently. So I'm going to be very careful and try not to use those particular words. But the thing is, when you get this variation within the kind, this sorting the genetic material over many generations, you know what? Things are actually running down. You're losing variability. You're losing information. Can I prove that? Absolutely. You know what my proof is? Poodles are the end of the line for dogs. Poodles are, in effect, the cul-de-sac of dogs. Below poodle, there is nothing. 
If a poodle loses any more genetic information, it ceases to exist. Therefore, you start off with a real dog and you end up with poodles. Now, the Chihuahua and the Shih Tzus, that, we, that we've got some Shih Tzus at home, and they are about on the scale of, like, dumb creatures in the universe. This is Poodle. They're right there, okay? The, 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 not, not that they're any great, you know, not that they're the Einsteins of dogs. But nonetheless, this process is going down. It is running down. Is this a good or a bad thing? Actually, it's a good thing. Because God in his infinite wisdom, now I'm not going to say poodles are good, that's, that's man-made. But the thing is, in the real world, you would never get poodles. I mean, poodles are like artificial breeding. I mean, there's no way a poodle survives out in the wild. Most poodles can't survive on the front porch for 15 minutes, <laughs> much less, you know, trying to like forage for food. But I mean, you can take it to extremes, but this sorting of genetic information is actually good because God knew these creatures were going to have to adapt to multiple environments. So over time, the process is running down. So that's what you see in genetics, a real observational science. Once again, says this word's true. Now, I'm going to show you the best studied example of evolution ever. The example I'm about to show you has been used in testimony before uh, school boards and before state legislatures as they've talked and debated about teaching creationism in schools and intelligent design debates and all this kind of stuff. This is what one prominent geneticist has said. This is the prize horse in our stable. This is the knockout punch to the creationist. This is proof of evolution. It's the peppered moth. I'm laughing too. I don't get it. The peppered moth exists or occurs in two varieties, a light-colored form and a dark-colored form. And over the last 175 to 200 years, people have studied and counted the peppered moth. You know, particularly in England, you know, 150 years ago, this is for iPhones and cable TVs and, and anything to do with your time. These people would go out and throw nets over the trees in the forest and count the peppered moth. I don't ever want to be bored enough that I say, honey, let's go out and count some moths. But anyway, they went out and they counted and they started categorizing the peppered moth. Now, what they found is the majority of places they were doing these counts, the peppered moth, the majority of them were the light-colored form and very few dark-colored moths because in a lot of these areas, the tree trunks were light-colored. You know, they were covered with lichen and the... Uh, the thought was that the light-colored moth would, you know, couldn't be seen on the tree trunks, and the darker-colored moth could be seen so that it, it, you know, it was like camouflage. As it turns out, it's much more complex than that, but we'll leave it there. You know, when the trees were light-colored, they had more light-colored moth. Then over time, as the Industrial Revolution progressed and there was pollution and soot got on the trees, the trees got progressively darker. Now, what they found is they continued to count the moths. As the trees got darker, the number of light-colored moths went down, and the number of dark-colored moths went up. I'm not going too fast for you, am I? You good with this? Okay, when the tree trunks were light-colored, you had more light-colored moths. As the tree trunks got dark, you got more darker-colored moths. Okay, now in some of these areas, they enacted some pollution control laws, and over time, in certain areas, not everywhere, in certain areas, the tree trunks got lighter. Now, you're going to be totally astounded at what happened to the moth. Now, I'm going to run through this again because this is heavy-duty science in case you're not taking notes correctly. But when the tree trunks were light-colored, you had more light-colored moths. When the tree trunks got darker, you had more darker-colored moths. When the tree trunks got lighter again, what happened? You had more lighter-colored moths. Wow. That's said to be evolution in action because over 150 years, a moth has turned into... A moth. <laughs> now, if this moth had turned into an eagle, we'd have something to talk about. 
Now, the thing is, what happened with the peppered moth is exactly what you should think was going to happen if you started with God's Word. Because guess what? These moths stayed moths. But those, those moths that had the genetic variability that, you know, their offspring were darker colored tend to propagate, you know, at times when the tree trunks are dark. This is just shifting allele frequencies. This is exactly what you'd expect. This is natural selection in action. But the world says evolution by natural selection. You know, if natural selection goes on for long enough, one kind of creature is going to turn into another. Folks, there is no genetic mechanism by which this moth will ever be anything other than a moth. That's not evolution. It's natural selection. But it leads to a very important question. How many races are there? The right answer is one. You know what I was taught when I was an undergraduate? By one of the world's most famous anthropologists, by the way. I was taught there were four races. And I've talked to a lot of people who are my age, and I wonder, you know, find, that were sort of in undergraduates around the time I was. And I've asked them this question. When you were in biology class or if you took anthropology, what were you taught in answer to this question? And I've, heard, I've talked to people who've said back in the, say, mid-late 70s, they were taught there were three, four, five, six, or seven races of man. God's Word's clear. There's one race, the human race. But the anthropology. But the anthropologists, the biologists have taught any number of different races. You know why? This is true. We evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. And if that's true, this is true. (laughs) And ladies, if that's true, yeah, I heard an oh no. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, this is true. And we can laugh, but you know something, if that's true, this is true. If evolution's true, all people groups could not have evolved to the same rate at the same time. You've got many different people. Because after all, people groups look different, don't we? You know, we have different, you know, we call ethnic or, you know, cultural groups now, but they're different races. You know, people look different. So they can't all have evolved to the same rate at the same time. And the thing is, if you've got different people groups evolving at different rates, how many people groups can be the most evolved? One. And guess what? They find themselves perfectly justified in looking down on all those people groups who aren't as evolved as we are. Now, let me say this loud and clear, lest anyone misinterpret. Evolution is not the cause of racism. You know what the cause of racism is? Sin, pure and simple. Man's inhumanity to man has existed since the fall. But evolution has been used as a scientific justification for racism more than any other concept in human history. Oh, Tommy, that's not true. It's very true. This is from a textbook, I believe it was in 1927. And on the right side, you see the family of apes, so-called. And then on the left side, you see the modern races of man. Because all people groups aren't the same. All races aren't equally evolved. Kindred of Stone Age men discovered on Antarctic Island, missing links with mankind in the early dawn of history. You know what those seven people were called by the scientists of the day? They were called missing links. They're not as human as we're. They're not as evolved. They're closer to the apes. You know what we need to do? We need to study them. They're not as good as we are. Did these seven people have a, have a backwards culture? I'm trying to find a graceful way to put it. Were they uncivilized? 
No, they weren't. They had a very rich cultural heritage. Was it different than the European scientists who wanted to study them? Absolutely. But guess what? They don't have our technology. They're not as smart as we are, so therefore they're closer to the apes. They had a very rich cultural heritage, folks. It was different. But you know what those seven people are? They're human beings. They're fully human. How many people have heard the term caveman? What are cavemen? People live in caves. Do not overthink. When I ask a question, do not overthink it, okay? Yeah, if you have to go, you've overthought it, okay? Yeah, what are cavemen? They're people who live in caves. One of the most famous cavemen in history died not long ago. Anybody? Osama bin Laden. He lived in caves throughout his life. Caves are great places to live. But see, you know, they're backwards. We get this idea that, you know, we evolved through all these stages and, you know, we're, you know, cavemen and, mm, you know, me invent fire. Mm, you know, me wear leopard skin. Mm, you know, me hit wife with club. That would be the end of cavemen. Okay. First thing I take it, my wife, Tommy doesn't exist anymore. The process got started. But see, we get this and we even buy into this. Oh, you know, we're somehow backwards. Read through God's word in Genesis. You know? What you find, you find lists of very capable people. But see, even people in church, we buy into this idea that somehow, you know, people in the past were not as capable. You know the Australian Aborigine was hunted and killed in the name of evolution? You know why? They're not human. You can kill the Aborigine, you can can slice them up, you can boil their skulls, send them back to Europe. We can study them because they're links to our early evolutionary heritage. There was a museum in Europe that actually prepared a bounty hunter's guide to teach people how to go to Australia, you know, corral, kill, prepare aboriginals to send back for study because they're not human. You know what God's word says? We're all one blood. We start off with two people, Adam and Eve. They had sons and daughters. People reproduced for lots of years, about 1,750 years or so after creation. There's a little problem. It's called the flood. Noah and his family got on board that boat, and we're all descendants of Noah and his family. Now, what would cause people groups to wander off with each other? How about the Tower of Babel? God confused the languages and dispersed the people. Now, if you're going to walk off with a group of people, you're going to walk off with somebody you can understand or somebody you can't understand. I'm going to go with somebody I can understand just because I have somebody to talk to. See, this is not hard. Then over time, you have these groups that become genetically isolated. They reproduce together. Different physical characteristics become prominent in each of these groups. And we call them racial characteristics. More accurately, they should be called ethnic or cultural characteristics. And guess what? We don't all look the same, but we're all fully human because Eve was mother of all the living. Now, the Human Genome Project has finally caught up with God's Word because when they completed the Human Genome Project, you know what the geneticist says? All people are of one race, the human race. But guess what? For 150 years before that, that is definitely not what they taught. And we've got textbook upon textbook upon textbook upon textbook in our ministry library and in our archives that show they taught just that. All people groups are not the same. But when you look at people groups through biblical glasses, you come to right conclusions. When you look at people groups through secular glasses, you come to really, really wrong conclusions. And again, I've been taught this since I was like in grade school. Honestly, this is what I've been taught since I was in grade school. We evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. And I suspect most people have seen illustrations like this at some point. Now, the thing is, if you take all the fossils, just sort all the fossils out, what you'll find is this. Fossils either fully human or fully ape. There are no intermediates. There are no in-betweens. See, when I was young, Cro-Magnon man was the, was the missing link. Well, they had to give up on Cro-Magnon man. Turned out that was human. Then Neanderthal was the missing link. Well, it turned out that was human too. 
Well, you think they'd be out of bullets, but they've got one spe- they've got they've got one fossil left. They're hanging on to for dear life. Who are they hanging on to? Lucy. This is our great 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 great. I'll be through in a minute. Great 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 grandmother. Now it's a little easier to see here. So that's what they found, and they said that's the first tomb. That's that's our earliest ancestor, folks. You know what that is? That's an ape always been an ape it's an ape now it's always going to be an ape it was is and always shall be an ape it's 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 an ape and i've got a couple of papers in my archives in my in my files at the office from secular sources that say they think it's an ape and i actually heard from one um anthropologist he thinks it's larry <laughs> but anyway this is their this is the proof they've got left that we evolved from ape-like creatures okay now we're going to do a test they found that and they made that does anybody have a problem with that? To go from that to that. Anybody have a problem with that? I don't. Well, I'm going to tell you why. I'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd be a poor guest indeed if I didn't tell you why. Because I'm a medical doctor. I've studied the human body. Now, if you find this, let's just say you found the left femur. I don't have any problem at all with you saying there's a mirror image on the right. I really don't. We're symmetrical creatures. If you find the, you know, the right radius, I'll spot you. you there, there's one on the left. There's no reason to think that, you know, because creatures are symmetrical. You know, if you find ribs three, four, five over here, and you don't, I, I don't have a problem saying that you have. So filling in a lot of this to me is, that, to me, that's good science. I don't have a problem with that. Having said that, you know, from the neck up, I'm not quite as excited. Because see what they found here, the, the, the jawbone and the piece of the skull? They, they made that. So I'm not quite, from the neck down, honestly, I really don't have a problem with that. You know, you got half the pelvis, you can have a mirage on the other side. So I don't really have a problem going from that to that. But that's not where it ended. They started here, they went here, and then they went there. Anybody got a problem with that? I'm a little less enthusiastic about that. For example, um, do you see feet here? I know, I know it's kind of dark, I know it's hard to see. But from once over, do you see feet there? What kind of feet do you see? You see feet there? You see feet there? No feet, no feet, human feet. Well, that certainly makes perfect sense because they got, a, they got abundant evidence for that. They went from no feet, no feet, no feet, no feet to human feet. But that's what they found, and that's our earliest ancestor. Now, you may wonder how they figured out that that ape was the earliest human. I could tell you, but it's going to be much better if I let them tell you. The ape that stood up. It was a revolutionary idea. We needed Owen Lovejoy's expertise again, because the evidence wasn't quite adding up. The knee looked human, but the shape of her hip didn't. Superficially, her hip resembled a chimpanzee's, which meant that Lucy couldn't possibly have walked like a modern human. But Lovejoy noticed something odd about the way the bones had been fossilized. When I put the two parts of the pelvis together that we had, this part of the pelvis has pressed so hard and so completely into this one that it caused it to be broken into a series of individual pieces which were then fused together in later fossilization. Okay, this is his problem. He's got this specimen, and he knows that we evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. His problem is this thing kind of looks like an ape. 
Well, I know it can't be an ape because I know we evolved over the last three to five million years into humans from ape-like creatures, but this thing looks like an ape. You would think that would be an insurmountable problem. Au contraire. Uh, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well that they're in an anatomically impossible position. The perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bone seem to flare out like a chimp's. But all was not lost. Lovejoy decided he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly, like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. You think? I'm not often speechless, folks, but that kind of did it. I mean, I want you to think about, let's just say a whole busload of evolutionists come to the Creation Museum. And we have lots of evolutionists, lots of skeptics come, and, and they're more than welcome. We want them to come and see what we believe and why we teach what we teach. But let's just say a whole bunch of evolutionists come to the Creation Museum, and they look at our fossils, and they see Dremel tool marks all over them. What are they going to do? They're going to lose their minds. But for them, it's the correct thing. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about this before you answer. Was Lovejoy being deceptive? Was he being deliberately deceitful? Was he? No, he wasn't. You know what he was doing? He was being consistent with his worldview. He didn't say, I know this is an ape. I'm going to make it human. I know this is human. And I have to find a way to explain why it looks like an ape. He was not being deliberately deceitful. He was being blinded by his worldview. He was not intending to deceive. He made a, he made a wrong decision because his worldview led him to the wrong conclusion. But I reject that he was out to deliberately be decept, deceptive. He was trying to make sure the evidence he knew was human looked human. What he did was wrong, but he did not have a bad motive. He was being consistent with his worldview. Now, I have been criticized roundly by the evolutionists for showing this clip. I've been, taken to, I've been taken to task by professors at Christian colleges for showing this. You know, who, you know who made this video? The evolutionists did. This has been on PBS for the last 15 years. And see, they don't mind that PBS shows it. They just mind me showing it. If this is a little different, it'd be great evidence for evolution. Ah, oh, there you go. Everybody knows fossils are fickle. Bones will sing any song you want to hear. I often tell people when they come to our conferences that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this. I mean, you, you should not be intimidated. You don't have to be intimidated. I mean, if somebody asks me a high-level question about geology, I call our geologist and say, Dr. Nugget, I don't know the answer to this. But I'm well-read on lots of subjects. You don't need to be uh, intimidated. But, you know, there are times that being a rocket scientist does help.
Now, I was speaking at First Baptist Church, Merritt Island, Florida, a couple of years ago, and I made the joke, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this, which was a stupid thing to say there because all those people work at NASA. So I felt like really <laughs> stupid. But nonetheless, you don't. But there are times that if you're a rocket scientist, you possess insight that mere mortals don't. What's that? Surface of Mars. Now, do, now, don't look. The thing in the bottom right-hand corner, that's part of the lander. We don't Photoshop our photos. So just ignore that. But other than that little piece right there, what do you see? Rocks and dirt. I've looked at that for years. You know what I see? I see rocks and dirt. But if you're a rocket scientist, you see more than that. A flood of biblical proportions, enough to fill the Mediterranean Sea, gushed down from the highlands of Mars a billion or so years ago. The latest, latest pictures from the Pathfinder confirmed a flood of biblical proportions. I mean, is that what they had in mind? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. But the thing is, I really am questioning their biblical knowledge because a flood of biblical proportions wouldn't have covered part of Mars. It would have covered how much of Mars? All of it. And these pictures confirm that that happened a billion or so years ago. Now, you and I see rocks and dirt. Rocket scientists see a catastrophic flood a billion years ago. Now, does anybody know of an itty-bitty, tea-tiny, sort of perhaps possible, maybe little objection to the idea of catastrophic floods on Mars. There's no liquid water on Mars. Now, there may have been in the past, I have no problem with it, but on a planet which at present has no liquid water, there's obviously been catastrophic floods. And those same scientists will say that on this planet, which is presently three-quarters covered by water, there's never been a global flood. Yeah. Welcome to my world. Why anybody can have a brain? That's a very mediocre commodity. Every pusillanimous creature that crawls on the earth or slinks through slimy seas has a brain. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning, where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got, a diploma. Therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Universitatis Comitiatum E Pluribus Unum, I hereby confer upon you the honorary degree of THD. <laughs> THD? Yeah, that's Doctor of Thinkology. Some of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side. Oh, joy! Oh, joy! Oh, rapture. Did anybody catch it? Did you catch it? Did you catch it? The first thing the scarecrow said after he got his THD, did you get what you said? It was wrong. The sum of the square roots of any two sides when I saw these triangles equal the square root of the main side is what? It's wrong. Folks, I do not in any way want you to leave here this morning thinking I mock or I'm trying to be belittle people who've gotten doctorates. I haven't earned doctorate. It took me 12 years. I mean, it's hard to do that. And people who've studied whatever particular field of endeavor, uh, you know, we need to respect and honor the level of study and scholarship it took to do that. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm just Tommy. I got six letters after my name. I'm just Tommy. I mean, I'd like to be respected for the scientific expertise and the medical expertise I have. At the end of the day, I'm just Tommy. 
You can have all the letters after your name. You can have all the alphabet soup after your name you want to. At the end of the day, you're a fallible human being with feet of clay. And we need to honor and respect those who've gone to great levels of study and achieved great you know, levels of academic success. But when they tell you they have knowledge that tells you this book is wrong, you need to really examine what we're talking about. We first, we need to look at God's Word and say, the, the passage, the air we're talking about, do we really understand what God's Word tells us? And then we need to step back and say, exactly how are you reinterpreting the evidence? How are you interpreting the evidence? Because, folks, what we see in God's world really does agree with what we read in God's Word. The earth is billions of years old. Take my word for it. Or I created in six days. Take my word for it. And 1 Corinthians 8, for some reason, and I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. This is, this, this is what my life insists needs to be my life verse. I'm, maybe you can help me with this. I don't know. If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, why my wife thinks that applies to me, I have no idea, but... Uh, <laughs> Folks, the Bible needs to be the foundation of our thinking in every area, and we need not be intimidated. Nobody has every answer. Nobody knows everything about everything. I mean, go to our website, www.answersingenesis.org. Go to the, uh, the search engine. Just type in you know, Carbon-14 or Noah's Ark or Natural Selection uh, or T-Rex or Distant Starlight. or Whatever you got questions about, we want to help you have answers. We have over 10,000 articles on our website, and we're adding more every day. Our Answers Book series, Answers Books 1, 2, 3, and 4, and these four volumes, over 120 of the most asked questions we get at Answers in Genesis. And, folks, you take a stand for Jesus Christ in this culture, you're going to get these questions. I used to get them every day from my patients when I was in my, actively in my medical practice. I promise you, you're going to need these answers. Answers book for kids. These are questions we've actually gotten from little kids, ages 4 to 10 at our children's conferences. Now, when my kids were that age, we had to tap dance around a lot of tough questions because these books, these resources weren't available 20 years ago. Parents and grandparents, we don't want you to dancing around those questions we need to sit down with our children and start teaching them from the very earliest age that god's word's true and again here we have lots of resources for kids uh, lots of dvds and all sorts of different topics and if you have any questions about those things certainly see me during the break or anytime after and with that we're done you man yeah. all right as the worship team comes back just want to thank you dr tommy tommy at the end of the day how many of you would like to have Dr. Tommy come along with you every day so that you could just kind of turn him loose on somebody you know? Anybody like that? Then I was thinking this. You know what, folks? At the end of the day, oftentimes it's good to be armed, and I want all those books. But at the end of the day, when you talk to somebody who's kind of got a closed mind, and has already got the answer they want, right? Even when you have Dr. Tommy right there. there th so what? You see, a transformed life. Somebody who says, come meet a man who told me everything about my life, who never went to Bible college, didn't know anything. A woman in that day, John chapter 4, just said, my, my heart has been touched. Could this man be the Messiah? And half the village turns out and gets saved. You see, so I'm encouraged. It's good to be informed. It's good to be smart. It's good to know, to have an answer. But at the end of the day, it's a transformed life. It's the word of God. It's living as light in a dark world. And we can make a difference, amen?
Why don't we stand together, closing song? You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.